brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. I'm really actually not convinced that our experiences in middle school are markedly worse yeah. than experiences we had at other times in our life. But we had zero perspective. We had no life experience. We were forming our identities and trying to figure out if we were good enough. And having that framework, I think, is helpful for parents to understand and maybe dread the phase a little bit less. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. I'm delighted to have as our guest, Phyllis Fagel. She's a school counselor for the Sheridan School in Washington, D.C. She provides therapy to children, teens, and adults in private practice at the Chrysalis Group. She's the mother of three terrific teenagers. And the reason why she's with us today, she's the author of Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond, and how parents can help. So Phyllis, welcome. Uh, what a fun book. What a, I mean, and, and it, what comes through to me is what a cool job you have. Not an easy one, but a cool job, which I suppose in many ways is what parenting is really like, a cool but not an easy job. So let, let me start with why write this book now? I mean, now-ish. I know it's been out for a little while, but, but, but why write this book now? So you're absolutely right that I have the best job on the planet. And people seem to disagree when I mention that I'm a middle school counselor. I don't always get the enthusiastic response that I would expect from such an awesome job. But one of the things about being a middle school counselor is that you're operating in a space where there really isn't a lot of information. There isn't a lot of research. Historically, people divided kids either into that young childhood bucket and focused on early literacy skills and the the beginning of elementary school. And then there was this other bucket, which was later adolescence and that transition to college. And that that was when things started to count and lost in all of that or lumped in with one of those groups where this was this cohort of middle schoolers. And so when I started working as a counselor, there really wasn't much for me to draw on. Hmm. And because I had started my career as a journalist, I thought, you know what, maybe I will, I'll create the missing narrative yeah. I would have liked to have had for myself. Well, and that's so curious because, uh, you know, is it is you make abundantly clear in the book and, and all of us who sort of, you know, comb back through our memories, arguably the most challenging time of of our of our childhood in school is is middle school. And so the idea that there was very little um, for folks uh, is, is, is kind of amazing to me. I mean, when you're in your book as just every page is just dripping with advice and insights and, and, and things that we, you know, kind of pull our hair out about and the idea that 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 wasn't kind of anywhere at least in a um, 
in an organized way is really something. So thank you for writing the book and, and bringing it together for folks. So what are the things that people most misunderstand about middle school and middle schoolers? What do we, what do we just get flat wrong? So I think we have to start with what we're bringing to the table as parents. And I think we bring to the table our, all of our own memories, which for some of us, I don't know about you, they're at best pretty neutral, but for mm. some people they're traumatic and mm. seared into their memories as this really horrible time where they just didn't feel good in their own skin. And what I remind parents is that, yes, it's feels that way and you remember it that way, but really what was happening is that you were going through puberty. You were experiencing the phase at the time when every emotion was a 10. And mm-hmm. I'm really actually not convinced that our experiences in middle school are markedly worse than experiences we had at other times in our life. But we had zero perspective. We had no life experience. We were forming our identities and trying to figure out if we were good enough and put all of that together. And it's a perfect recipe for really struggling during that time. Hmm. So having that framework, I think, is helpful for parents to understand and maybe dread the phase a little bit less. And also to really consider how they're messaging middle school to, to their own kids. I think a lot of us go off of the cultural rhetoric, movies like Mean Girls, if you ask middle schoolers, they've all seen Mean Girls, and they all have that added level of anxiety entering the phase, assuming that kids are going to suddenly overnight turn into mean, cruel, horrible, drama-seeking people. And I, I don't think that's what middle school is about at all. Yes, there are kids trying on mean behavior. Yes, there are kids who are clumsy and who don't always factor in how their actions will make someone else feel. And yes, there's this hierarchy that emerges in the absence of any formal hierarchy in the school setting. However, most of the mistakes that kids make are actually rooted in the fact that they're still learning. It's not coming from this place where for this brief period of time, they have poor character and they're people yeah hmm. that 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 point about what we experience and what we remember is such a good one it makes me you know think of daniel kahneman that there's the remembering self uh and so to your point how we as parents and as educators talk to kids about this seems to me it's going to have a really big impact on how they think about and reflect on these experiences that they're going to have in middle school. Um, one of the things that I think comes through so nicely in your book is that this is a phase of enormous growth and development. It isn't, it isn't two years of suffering that everyone has to just get through to get to better things. But that, well, I guess there's a reason why we call it growing pains and, and there's so much, and there's just so much going on with kids at that age. Um, what are some of the kind of singular challenges you think, or or you know, particular challenges of middle school that are, are that, that make middle school such a period of growth compared to you know the, the the years right before then? When kids go to middle school, they suddenly are given a lot more independence. They are no longer in the care of one caring adult who is their homeroom teacher. The academic demands increase. They're going through all kinds of changes and they're not doing it suddenly at the same pace as their peers. So that really close friend from elementary school might suddenly be having crushes and putting on makeup and you're still playing with your teddy bears and that's really painful. Hmm. And it's also a time that's characterized by a lot of social shifting and 
one of the things that I try to do to soften the experience for students is normalize all of that churn. Mm-hmm. Let them know that three quarters of friendships aren't going to make it from fall to spring. A statistic that always blows kids' minds is that only 1% of seventh grade friendships make it to 12th grade. And 1%? 1%. I must have missed that in your book. My goodness. I don't think it's in my book. I okay. Think I learned something new even now. This is great. <laughs> yeah. And what I, the reason I share that statistic and the reason why I think it's so compelling for parents to understand too, is that the 1% reflects the fact that it's not that kids are getting rejected because there's something inherently wrong with them. It's because this is when kids are learning how to be a friend and how to choose a friend. And hmm. all of that churn is just part of that learning process. That's so good. I have a, I have a, one of my all time favorite students who's, gosh, she's probably 40 now. Uh, just, and, and I just, I couldn't have liked her as a person more. She was just a terrific human being. And somehow we got to talking about middle school. And this goes back to Mean Girl's point. She said that, she said, I was the meanest kid in seventh grade. And I looked at her and I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And she said, oh yeah, I was just, I was absolutely terrible. And there's some, you know, probably some reasons for that. Um, and one of the things that you, one of the points you make in the book that I like so much is that where kids are socially, that they're, they're not stuck there, right? That, you know, as you're saying, you know, they're, they're trying on new friends, they're, tr- they're trying on new roles, new identities, new ways of behaving, which involves new friends, um, which can probably be horrifying for us as parents watching. Are you kidding me? What's, <laughs> but it also is such a, a a cause for uh, such a reason for, I think for us as parents to relax, um, you know, and to not, not catastrophize, right. To think that things that are going poorly now, that this is the kid, my kid is going to be malcontent. He's <laughs> mm-hmm. 35. I mean, is that just, is that just, that's just part of the deal, huh? Yeah, I I love that you point out how painful it is for parents, because in the book, I talk about this idea that your social status isn't fixed as a way to reassure a child that not only are they likely to have a successful thriving social life throughout their lifetime, but also this idea that kids who are not kind could change and become Mm. better people. And I like this twist, which is that parents need that reassurance too. Whether their kid is the one who's lashing out and being mean or their kid is the one who's targeted, it's reassuring to us as parents. And I I have three kids myself. My youngest is in middle school, entering seventh grade. And it's Mm. a good reminder for all of us that none of this is fixed. And all of those mistakes and poor choices that kids make in this phase, we don't want to deprive them of that or try to fix it. Because if we fix it or deprive them of the opportunity to go through it, they're likely to make far more impactful poor choices later on in their life with their life mate or whatever other relationships they're entering later on. Oh, that's so good. I know you, you have a, I forget who the expert in your book is, but, but makes the point that optimistic kids, and I think this would apply to optimistic parents as well, um, view things as temporary and specific. So things that don't go well, that's just this thing. That's not my whole life. And I think it's, it's, again, as you point out, <laughs> something that can cause, cause, uh, calm our nervous systems and, and make us feel confident as we go forward. Yeah. Now you talk about, um, you know, kids treating, um, others poorly or being treated poorly by others. Can you sort of give us a a kind of an overview about the bullies and the bullied and what should we know to look for? And, 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 and when we see it, what should we do? And maybe perhaps just as importantly, what should we as parents not do? So a question that I often get from parents is, you know, what do I, I don't need, or 
an assumption a parent might make is that I don't need to worry because my child has friends and my child is well-liked. But there's research showing that if your child has friends and is well-liked, odds are they're being unkind to somebody because within that middle school social structure, everyone is stepping on the heads of the person. Hmm. And the research shows that kids who are aggressive or who use power and aggression in order to gain status, they, over the course of their lifetime, have higher rates of addiction, higher rates of depression and mental illness. They have less job stability. They achieve less academically. And so we want to really be targeting that mean behavior from a young age as much as possible and not just dismiss it and say, well, they seem to be generally okay. They have friends. And also as parents in that middle school phase, if we hear kids in our car, let's say we're driving our child and their friends around town and we hear them making unkind comments or planning something that might humiliate another child, I think a lot of parents get stuck. Should I get involved? Should I not get involved? And while we do want to allow our children to make those mistakes, we do want to be speaking up when in our presence, we hear Mm -hmm. something unkind. We want to be modeling what we expect from them. And there's a lot of power in the disappointment of a parent. There's a lot of power in the disappointment of a coach, of a teacher, of any adult in a child's life. And this is such an impressionable age where they're still forming that moral identity. And we have Hmm. this to get in there and influence how they treat other people that we don't want to let those opportunities go by. Well, this is, I love that. You know, you, I, you make the point that um, when kids, and I'm sure it applies to us as parents, as grownups as well, um, you know, that when we criticize other people, we really prime ourselves to be vulnerable to the criticism of other people. When you talk about, we, you talk a lot about modeling. So can you give us an example of what a parent could do to kind of health in, in a healthy way, model what, you know, criticism might look like? Because I'm not going to, you know, I don't like everybody. Not everybody likes me, right? And, and I can be, a, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's okay for me as a kid or as a parent to be upset about this person or that person. But what might that look like to model in kids a, a healthy way that their feelings are legitimate, but there's a kind of a, a, a more appropriate or less appropriate way? First, we want to be authentic. And I think it's a mistake to tell your children you expect them to like everybody or to be friends with everybody. Mm-hmm. And it would come across as completely uh, inauthentic to pretend that we ourselves mm-hmm. like everybody. But one of the things that we can talk about with kids is power dynamics. Huh. And when they are talking about a child in a disparaging way, and you as the parent recognize that that is a child who doesn't have a lot of friends or perhaps has uh, some difficulties with social skills or has some learning challenges that make them stick out. And really, that's one of the hardest things to cope with in middle school is being different. It makes you a target it's associated with bullying and really hammering home for your child that if you have more power, if you have the if you have friends and you're happy that we want to be looking out for people who are more vulnerable and modeling that for them, showing them in your own life how you're reaching out to people in a way that is helpful. If you've got two kids who are on the same, on a level playing field and they're having a disagreement, we can be talking to them about the difference between arguing over an issue and making an ad hominem attack. So you can Hmm. ask them very- And teach them some nifty vocabulary too, and and that's good. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it sounds like you're really frustrated with this friend. You just said you hated her. Um, that's a really strong way to talk about how you're feeling. What is it that she has done? 
what could she, you know, what could you say to her to address that specific incident and feel heard? And how do you think she might respond? And what's a constructive way to handle the situation? So the something you said earlier is related to this, this idea that when we get stuck in negativity and when we message things in a negative way, that's where we are emotionally. So it's counterintuitive, but if a child is complaining and venting, they may actually make themselves feel worse as opposed mm. to listening, validating their feelings. And then say, you know, I, I would be pretty upset too if a friend had spread a rumor about me. So let's talk about what you can do next. How can we put an end to this? How, how would you like to proceed? Get, making sure we're reminding kids that they get to choose their friends in middle yeah, school. Yeah. They don't have to hang out with someone who makes them feel crappy. They can block people on social media who bother them. I think that isn't necessarily intuitive. And then as parents, we have to be super patient because we can see in an instant when someone is unkind to our child. We can see in an instant when two friends are incompatible and they're on a collision course and this is not going to end well. And all we want to do is say, stop. No, abort, change course. And unfortunately, there's a lot of interference in middle school. You know, you want to fit in. They may, that may be a peer group that they want to be a part of. They might worry that the person will target them if they're not in that group. Right. And so we have to be asking questions that get them to think critically about those friendships as opposed to telling them what to do. And then sit back and let it play out, recognizing hmm. that it can take excruciatingly long time for them to realize <laughs> how unproductive this friendship is for them. Oh, if only there were interpersonal airbags for those collisions, that would make it oh, so much easier to <laughs> breathe. Well, one of the things I want to sort of emphasize in, in how you're describing that is, um, and, and obviously this is because you're, you know, a, a, a trained a trained therapist and you have all this experience doing this, but in, in, those, in those words talking about how you would talk to a kid, at no point are you telling her or him how to think. You know, you're, you're validating, you know, their feelings. I can understand when that'd be hard. But, and what do you think? And can you kind of talk through, um, as I sort of hear it, there's, there's validating and then there's asking questions and why that is so much more effective than telling kids, here's what you should have done. What's going on from a brain perspective? So for a young adolescent, for a middle schooler, they are going to misinterpret the tone or the intent of your words about 40% of the time. Mm. And so we want to make sure that we are consistent in our body language, in the words we choose, in our facial expressions. And we also want to make sure that we are in no way transmitting judgment, which is what they're going to default to mm. when involved. What we consider a very neutral comment to them is going to come off as incredibly critical. And the the way to get around that, the the default to get in there and have the conversation without them shutting down is to start from a place of curiosity. And that's where questions come in. And I don't mean judgmental questions like why the hell did you do that? <laughs> or, What's wrong with you? Right. <laughs> what were you thinking? You know, but that's not going to get you anywhere. That, yeah, I that, love that. What were you thinking, right? We 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 say that in our heads probably in a in a feeling that we're being inquisitive when the reality is we're sort of leading an inquisition, right? Yeah, exactly. I think you say that in my book at one at one point as well. I love that. Oh, I say a lot I of things. That. I have no idea. Anyway, proof you're listening. I appreciate that, Phyllis. <laughs> yeah, and so if we instead ask them, you know, tell me, you know, which of your friends make you laugh the most? Mm -hmm. Or if you were in a crisis, 
who is your go-to friend? And this is another concept that's really hard for middle schoolers to understand, this idea that one person isn't going to meet all of your needs and no one friend is perfect. And guess what? You're not perfect either, even though you might feel that you <laughs> are and that you're the perfect friend. And so we can think about it in terms of buckets. Who is the person you want to hang out with when you want to feel light and airy? Who is the person who helps you really concentrate when you need to do a group project? Who is the person who uh, buoys you when you're feeling really crappy about yourself? Who is the person who you know will always keep a secret? Who is the person who may not be able to keep a secret, but is so much fun? And hmm. by assembling a, a broader group of friends, you really you reinforce the idea that you don't have to be perfect either. Oh, that's which so good. Just sets you up for failure. And also it's protective because if a couple of those friendships aren't going so well, you probably have some some others on reserve that you could turn to in those darker times. One of the things you you shared there is 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 how to talk to kids so they if even when we may be disappointed by something that they've done, that we don't feel like they're dis that we're disappointed in them about people, right? I mean, you know, I, I can, I can imagine when, when you're talking about the chapter about homework that a kid comes home with a, with a, a, a suboptimal, right, grade uh, or test or whatever. And, and how do we as parents not catastrophize um, lest the kid think we're upset, you know, at them for getting a bad grade rather than upset with them for, for the kid feeling disappointed. Um, do you, when you, when you coach parents who eh, maybe they have the tendency to to lean lead jump into those conversations with a t perhaps a, maybe a tad more energy that might be productive. Do you have kind of you know one or two three you know things that it, okay now here's before you have a conversation about this, I really suggest you try blah right because some of this is not just the message that you're 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 imparting to us as parents, but also how do you coach us as messengers to deliver that. First is to know yourself. And so if you know that you're going to have a knee-jerk reaction to a bad grade or if it's going to trigger your own anxiety and really mm. what you're talking about is parental anxiety mm -hmm. because no one test is going to tank a kid, yeah. but it could be a curveball for a parent for whom that's a trigger. And so if you know that about yourself, you can come up with some set phrases in advance or you can have one comment that you make and you take a little bit of time and space away from your child so that you're not bringing that, that negative energy to the conversation. Another thing I think is that's important to remember is no kid wants to fail. Mm -hmm. No kid is poorly on a test. And so essentially what you're doing is kicking someone when they're down mm -hmm. in a bad, dark place. I don't know any students. What's, what's, are, what's the Jane Nelson line said, where do we get the crazy idea that in order to help kids do better, we first have to make them feel worse? Right. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, she's great. And we're talking about middle school where the stakes are very low. And to me, if a child does poorly on a test in middle school, what a great opportunity once the moment has passed and it's not so raw to take a, a look at what went wrong, what uh -huh. got in there. Uh -huh. Because really we want kids to emerge from middle school knowing what they need to be successful, to be focused, to study to know how to self-advocate and go ask for help from a teacher, to have a sense of what gets in their way. Maybe they shouldn't have put it off until the last minute. Maybe they looked at the wrong worksheet. Whatever went wrong, I think we should be grateful, actually, as parents when things don't go perfectly so that we have a chance to help them boost those skills. So maybe it's a reframing in the parent's mind from 
scaling a quiz to opportunity to help my child develop some of the skills I need throughout life. Well, that's so good. I mean, one, one of the things that, that, that I think that one of the great lessons for me of middle school matters is that these are tools, these are skills, and no one is born you know, we may all have sort of fall into uh, strength with, with one or, or several of these 10 key skills that you talk about, but no one's born with, with all of them, right? And just like we have to be taught math or to play the piano or, you know, conjugate French or something, these are developable skills or tools, right? Um, and so, and so your point that, um, you know, screwing up, making mistakes, you know, failing in middle school is the perfect time to do this in part because you know from a from a parental angst perspective these grades don't follow you anywhere right um you 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 have a, a you make a point in the book that um if my goal as a parent is to make sure that my kid gets everything right i'm really sacrificing something if, if i also have a, sh- a goal of wanting my kid to be independent so tell me tell me more i, well, I can't i can't do both <laughs> As parents, I think it's natural and instinctive to want to shield our kids from all discomfort. And we don't want them to get that low grade and feel bad. We want to call the school and immediately get everybody agitating to give them the support that they need. And what we really want to be doing is bolstering their ability to do that for themselves. And that doesn't mean that you back off completely. That's another misconception about middle school, that this is when parents should just take a huge step back Mm -hmm. and say, I'm out. They really need you to help them develop those skills. But it might look like the first step is you doing it for them, sending an email to their teacher for them, but Mm -hmm. you're sitting next to you and watching you do it. And then the next step is that they're doing it and you're sitting next to them and making sure there's a proper salutation and that it's respectful and gets their point across. And then the last step is that they're doing it on their own. And the key part is that once they can do it on their own, you don't go back and do it for them. Not because you're rushing, not because it would be more expedient, not because you just want to make sure it happens, but you really have to have that restraint and let them continue to take ownership of that going forward. That's how they they learn and, and retain those skills. <laughs> I was my my son is you know is uh, like yours and just graduated high school, and we were reflecting the other day. I don't know why this popped into mind, but in middle school, there was the egg drop in the science class, the physics class, or whatever, and in a in a just a brutally tragic parenting fail. I inserted myself into this because I thought it sounded super fun and I knew physics and I can tutor physics and blah, blah, blah. But of course, this is really a, first of all, it's his work. And two, this is experimentation. It's not like an advanced degree in physics is going to get you anywhere. And so there was, mistakes were made. And so instead of creating a parachute for the egg drop, um, because I misunderstood something, um, we basically made a guided missile. (laughs) <laughs> and this little tiny parachute behind me, I thought I understood things correctly, which perfectly, so, so <laughs> it turns out you got points for um, if the egg landed safely, and you got points if how close it was to the target, right? So if you have a really big open parachute, it lands safely, but, you know, lands 50 feet away. We hit the target spot on because it was sort of like we projected that egg, you know, out of... <laughs> out of a slingshot straight at the target and smashed. Oh, it was terrible, 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 terrible. But um, we do get to laugh about it now. So I guess there's, I guess there's that. Um, what is it about 
the brains of, of, of kids at this age? What, what are some of the structural differences? Because one of the things I know I've said this myself, I know I've heard my wife, probably every parent in the world say, why can't they, or when are they going to, as though saying the same message over and over that it's finally going to sink in. And what, when a lot of times we mistakenly believe that it's how we say something or how many times we say something that will change the behavior when honest to gosh, a lot of it is just brain development. So for parents who have not yet read your book, can you talk a little bit about what's actually going on with the brain so we can let them off the hook and give ourselves a break too, and just, you know, trust the gift of time. So we know that a child's brain is not fully developed, a, a boy maybe until 26, a girl until about mm. 24, you know, gr the girls love it when I tell them that their brain probably will be fully developed before their male classmates, it. they completely relate to that and appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but the part of the brain that's not fully developed is the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for things like empathy and logical thinking and problem solving. Mm. And, and so you can say something a million times, but that doesn't account for the interference they're going to be experiencing. That moment when they're at a party and the girl they like is there and that girl wants them to drink with them and they know they shouldn't because you've told them that a hundred times. But in that moment, the power of wanting to impress this girl or be with this girl takes over. And so understanding that emotions are powerful. The brain isn't fully developed, and that is why they make so many mistakes. It's why they need so much coaching and guidance. One of the something that's not in the book, but that I really like and that I learned about after middle school matters came out is something called inoculation theory. And mm. Josh Compton at Dartmouth, who uh, has done a lot of work in this area, and it's the idea that you can prime kids for experiences that would probably put them in. Would, that might tempt them to take a, an unnecessary risk or to make a poor choice by explaining what that situation is and what the temptation might be. So it might be, you might be in a situation where you've got some really juicy gossip and you are at lunch and every all eyes are on you and you have an opportunity to share this unbelievably exciting piece of information, this awesome story and everyone knows in middle school that the best story wins and you're <laughs> going to be carried away in that moment you're going to be intoxicated with the power of having this information and you might want to share it so that people are transfixed and people want to be around you but you know it's even more powerful, you know, it feels even better than being that center of attention and having the best story, being known as the person who everyone can trust, being known as the person who can keep a secret. And when they're in that situation, they may not always do the right thing, but they're going to have that voice in, mm. your, in their head. Uh, you can do it for vaping. You can do it for anything. You tell them what the situation might be, what the temptation is, why they might want to do it, and then give them a compelling counter argument for why they should take a different tact. And what Josh Compton's research shows is that if you do that for enough scenarios, you can't, it generalizes. So it actually has a protective effect when they're faced with temptations that you didn't find them to expect. Maybe you never got to cheating on a test and went, mm -hmm. you never went to the exercise of why you would be tempted and why you shouldn't do it. But they might still be able to make that right call because you've taught them how to think through 
these dilemmas in a different way. Wow, that's really good. So if I can repeat that back, I, I really, it's not my job, nor is it, is it necessary for, for me or for any parent to kind of cover every scenario. But if we talk through it, have them visualize it, discuss it, role play, what have you, and we do this for, you know, five or six or seven things, they, I, I then learn that model and I can apply it to other situations that weren't covered or ones that our parents haven't even dreamed up yet. Yes. And the other thing parents can do that's really powerful is to articulate their values. And one way to do that, that's kind of fun and you can do it with your child, is to do a values card sort. And the values card sort is something you can Google online. It's about a hundred different values ranging from responsibility to humor to energy. You know, everybody's going to have a different set of core mm -hmm. values and some people are going to want more risk in their life. Some people are going to prioritize money and some people are going to prioritize stability or security. But what you do is you print out the hundred cards and you can even order a stack of these cards and have your child sort the deck of cards and choose their top 10. And I think it's powerful if parents do it as well. So you're not mm -hmm. saying we're going to agree on the same values. I'm going to share my values. You're going to share your values. And once you get that top 10, mm -hmm. rank them one through 10. And then talk about why they chose the values that they chose. Talk about why you chose the values you chose. Explain that those values might change over time, but that mm -hmm. it's important to understand where you are emotionally and at that moment. And then what they can do is take some time to internalize and remember which values they chose. And when they're in a difficult situation, rather than try to figure out all the intricacies of what they should do, to simply say, which of these two choices is consistent with my core values and go back to those values that they chose. And more often than not, they're going to make the right choice. And if they make the wrong choice, more often than not, they'll at least have a compelling reason that they can tell themselves for why they made the choice they did. It's easier to live with the decision. Wow. I love that. It, you know, that makes me think about there's in our book, uh, um, Bill and I, our book, there's a, um, we talk about a writing exercise, which you may know where, where students write about a core value and it, you know, it's kind of one-time intervention, write a, a paragraph about it. And it actually improves academic performance in a, in a, in a way that persists, um, because it's exactly as you described when, when, when I identify, when children identify with a core value, then if I, if I go and face a math test, right, and, and I'm really stressed out, I don't do well, well, maybe that threatens my, you know, self-concept as a mathematician. But if I've, if I've really been primed to think about myself as, you know, a, 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 a good friend or a person who's honest or uh, someone who believes in environment or social justice, those things aren't threatened. I may need a calculator, but that, but, but, but it lowers. It, 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 right? <laughs> um, boy, I love this. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to look that one up. It's, I suspect it's never too late. You know, I suspect it's never too late to do that kind of thing. And what, what I'm, I'm thinking, not just for kids, but for ourselves, right? For all of us to identify with, um, to identify with core values is such a, a helpful way to get us, help us get through anything. And goodness knows for most of us, there's a lot to be getting through right now. It's also a really helpful way for adults to make decisions. I joke with my third child that he exists because of the values card sort, having him <laughs> with my values, you know, and I was weighing the pros and cons of having a third kid. And yeah. I'm not sure if he appreciates that or not, but he owes a lot to that values card sort. But it, 
could be whether or not to leave a job. It could be whether or not to move to another city. It could be anything really. But if you make a decision that's in accordance with your values, it's easier to live with it after the fact, even if it doesn't turn out to be the right choice for you ultimately. Wow. And and where my brain is going to is is I'm making those decisions based on my values that I identify as opposed to out of fear. Because I think so many decisions are are ultimately made out of fear, right? Um, because you talked about, you know, the prefrontal cortex, which is all that planning and decision making, but also empathy, as opposed to, you know, the mingle, which is a fear reaction. And uh, boy, I like that a lot. I want to pivot for a second. You, you've talked a bit about uh, um, here about boys and girls, and, and you, you spend an entire chapter about boys and the challenges of boys and, and opportunities of boys and of girls. Can you sort of thumbnail sketch what are some of the you know, big trends? How is middle school different for boys than it is for girls? And, and perhaps what are some of the ways that we as parents need to support boys differently than how we support girls? You know, I think that the... Over the last 50 or so years, we've made a lot of strides in terms of empowering girls. We've had, for as many years as I've been at my school, a female empowerment group. <laughs> and girls really have internalized this message that they can do anything, be anything, and that they should have equal access to sports. And they have learned how to agitate for their own rights. But the corollary is that we haven't really done the same for boys. And we still put forth this misguided concept, this antiquated concept that there's one right way to be a boy. And it's something that comes through in the media, in politics, in sports. And what it creates are a lot of middle school boys who are insecure about the fact that they don't fit into that quote unquote, man box. It's not Mm. something that reflects who they are or who they want to be. I've had many students tell me that they don't feel like it's okay to say that they'd like one trusting friend, they'd like a best friend, or it's not okay to say that they don't like sports, or they're supposed to pretend they're not into reading. And so Mm. I think we we have to open that man box a bit for our boys. One of the more powerful ways to do that is to have male influences in a boy's life. doesn't have to be a father, but it could be a coach, could be male teachers, it could be a neighbor, an uncle, really reinforcing this concept that there isn't one right way to be a boy um, and, and just combating that, that societal message a bit for them and, and relieving some of the pressure that they feel. Whereas one of the things I think girls still struggle with in, in contrast, so while boys are being all blustery and, and trying to pretend that they're great and all is perfect and <laughs> got it all That's together. That's I know. <laughs> <laughs> girls feel that they have to conceal their strengths, that they have to dial back their accomplishments, and uh, they tend to focus more on things that are superficial when they're putting themselves up front. Hmm. You know, so one of the things that I've written about is this idea of really encouraging girls to do something called two for two. So to every time a friend of yours does something substantive, meaningful, meaning not get a nice haircut or have a fun party, but maybe they worked up the nerve to run a half marathon or hmm. maybe they spearheaded a, a food drive and, and collected 13,000 cans. But when your friends do something that is 
an accomplishment that something that has meaning to on to to share it on social media to share that as opposed to sort of the selfies and the party pics yeah yeah what i what would then happen is because girls are so reciprocal in nature is that that friend is going to return the favor and it normalizes that it's okay to be proud of what you've done and it's okay to support one another you know there's a lot of uh, there's also a big sense that there's this limited tie, and I think girls sometimes get torn apart and the relationships suffer because they are nervous that supporting somebody else could end up detracting from their opportunities. So that is counterintuitive, but that, nothing could be farther from the truth. And the two for two is just one way to reinforce this idea that it, it kicks off a positive cycle of supporting one another. Oh, that's really good. You know, as, as you know, cause you, um, in, in the self-driven child that, that Bill Stickson and I wrote, we talk uh, quite a bit about how important a sense of control is to self-motivation is to keeping the stress down. Uh, and what that, what that two for two really points to, to me points to is the idea of a, uh, of what fosters an internal locus of control rather than external locus of control and since you're you're a psychologist you know good more than i can you just oh, sort of share that. with people kind of w- w- what what that looks like or feels like uh, particularly as you point out in, in kind of the middle school um social media um world that, that girls especially are are so influenced by so when you talk about what's in a child's control versus what isn't in a child's control and you look at the social piece as one example. There are things that a kid has mastery over. They can control whether they're kind. They can control whether they keep a secret. They can control whether they meet someone at the appointed time that they said they would meet somebody. Those are all things within their control. They can control how hard they work. They can control whether they take a risk and try out for the play. What they can't control are things like whether or not they make that travel select team or whether or not their father is the religious leader in a town in which that holds more currency than anything else. Mm. They can't control how much money their parents have if it's a materialistic culture. They can't control whether they're an athlete. They can control if they go for a run. They can control if they try to stay fit. And so one of the ways that we can really preserve our kids' sense of self is when we're complimenting them or when we're encouraging them to focus on the things that we know are within their control. You're such a great negotiator. I love how you helped your younger sibling. I really appreciate how responsible you were with our new puppy, as opposed to saying, you know, why can't you be like Drew, who's on the football team, or how come you didn't make the play? Mm -hmm. Recognizing, too, that if you're at this really insecure juncture in child development, it's hard to take risks and pressuring a kid to do something that they're not ready to do or pushing them too far outside their comfort zone can actually backfire if it doesn't go well. You know, forevermore that amygdala you were talking about, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. part of the brain is going to fire danger, danger, danger. Right, right, right. Push them too hard to try out for something and they humiliate themselves. Right, right. So we want to be pushing them to take small risks, but comfortable risks, and we want to be focusing on the things that they can control. So that would be, uh, I love how curious you are as opposed to you're so smart. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Or, or what's, uh, oh, wait a second, uh, Emily in the tennis, go down fighting, was that Ben's advice? Yes. You don't know if yes. you're going to win, but go down fighting. Golly, that was such a good story. Yeah, he was a good brother in that. He was a really good brother in that. I like, oh man, someone needs to make a short video about that. That was so, (laughs) that was so fun. 
Sometimes we all need a good big brother. (laughs) (laughs) We all deserve one. That's for sure. Um, you know, t- take a few more minutes of your time here, but one of the things that, of course, has popped up, um, and you talk about this in the, in the book about, about identity and um, differences, particularly, you know, you mentioned socioeconomic, but, but obviously um, ethnic and, and racial and cultural differences. And that has become a much bigger part of the conversation and the world that kids are, are living in um, since, you know, obviously since Black Lives Matter, um, the events that, that have become such a part of the conversation. Um, and that's tricky terrain for kids, for any of us to navigate, right? And even more so with kids who are still developing their linguistic tools and developing their empathy and, and developing more experience in the world. Can you talk a little bit, I would love to talk about what your advice is to, to, to parents to help kids through that. And then really sort of follow up conversation, a question I'll ask in a minute about what do we do when we make mistakes, which of course we, of course we do. But, yeah. but lay, lay the groundwork for us. Why is this so hard for kids? And, and or maybe, maybe it's harder for parents than it is for kids. I'm not sure. Sure. What do you, what do you see? Well, going back to the developmental phase and middle school and identity development, and they're already acutely aware of how they stack up to others and whether they're good enough and anything different is suspect in hmm. anyway, which creates fertile ground for exclusion or division. And so schools have to work really extra hard to create an environment in which kids are going to talk to people who are unlike them. It just goes against kind of the social order of middle school in a lot Mm. of ways. And it could be that it goes both ways. It's not necessarily, everybody is looking for their like-minded or similar background people. And so you know, I, I think schools can do some things. They can mix up seating at lunch. You know, you don't want to strip kids of all control, but maybe once in a while you have them sit by birthday, by birthdays or by some other interest area or you mix up grades. And the goal is really to help kids see that they have more in common than they might realize at first glance. So on the On the more extreme front, when you're talking about devastating events in the news that might be disproportionately impacting one group of students, I think the worst thing parents can do is to pretend it didn't happen or to ignore it or Mm -hmm. to your child Mm -hmm. ignore it. And what you want to be asking them, again, this goes back to the curiosity rather than judgment. You know, tell me about what happened. How do you think that you know, are there kids in your school who you think have been, I, I thought about this a lot during DACA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids in your school who have been directly impacted by this event. Uh, have you spoken to them about it? You know, what do you think you could do to support them? And really encouraging them to feel responsible as a member of the community for ensuring that everyone who's in that community feels safe and feel supported. Uh, and to also acknowledge that it's uncomfortable. I think it is something that our generation, you know, this generation of parents of middle schoolers, we were raised that it wasn't polite to talk about a lot of these issues. Mm. And there were no divisions, that there were no differences. And that obviously we know is not the right approach. Uh, As parents, we also can ensure our kids see that we ourselves are interacting with people who are not exactly the same as us in any number of different ways. You know, I I think one of the quotes in my book was from the parent of an autistic 
uh, girl, and she talks a lot about how it takes work to be include somebody in your life who may not fit in as easily. And so parents can really model that it's worth it, that it enriches your life to, even if it means that there, it's not easy to, to be more inclusive. And that same parent talked a lot about authentic inclusion, that inclusion isn't just, you know, a high in the hall. Inclusion is we, you're one of us. We're going to invite you to our parties. We want you to sit with us at lunch. And I spoke to the organization Beyond Differences, and they have an event called uh, "No." I think it's No Child Eats Alone or No One Eats Alone. Mm-hmm. And on that day, they encourage everybody to to sit with somebody who otherwise might be alone. And what they have found in their research from doing this experiment is that once they bridge that fear, once they get over that initial fear that maybe this person in a wheelchair, won't, I won't be able to relate to them and have a conversation. From then on, they don't have to work hard to have this no one eats alone day. The kids automatically will go and be inclusive. They want to, they want to have that child be a part of their life. I love that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person in a wheelchair. I'm not, you know, the wheelchair, right? I'm not, I'm not a yeah. wheelchair person, right? I'm a person in a wheelchair. Yes. And then invariably, people make mistakes, yeah. right? And you have the great line from Adam Grant. Do you, do you recall? He says, he, I'll prime you if I may. I've, I've, you probably read this. I've probably read it more recently than you have. <laughs> he, he talks about, the psychologist Adam Grant says, I'm sorry for, mm. as opposed to I'm sorry if. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, me, to me, that goes back to the, your, your idea, your, the point you make about modeling of how we can, as parents, do things better um, in order for our kids to watch them. And what's, what's why? What's the difference between I'm sorry for versus I'm sorry if? Well, you're, it's kind of like using the word, but like, mm. I like it, but you know that whatever comes after that, but is going to negate the compliment about right. right. And so that if serves that same purpose, you're, I apologize. And then you say, if, no, you did upset the person. <laughs> and a real apology. And, and I, even with very young kids work on teaching the four parts of an apology, because a real apology means you acknowledge what you did wrong, uh-huh. you tell the person that you're sorry, and you ask them what you can do to make it better. Mm-hmm. And then you actually make it better to the extent that you can. You know, a real apology has follow through. So, if we are trying to model that for our children, and and just to underscore that conflict is normal, you know, kids are going mm-hmm. to see their parents have an argument. And that is not detrimental to their development. What's detrimental is if they never see the resolution, if they never see that the parents worked it out, that they were able to make amends. And so we want to be making sure that we're modeling for our children that, yes, conflict happens. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And this is now you're seeing us work it out, so doing that follow through. That's so good. And, and then, I'll circle back to the idea that you're we're with that we're teaching kids we're we're helping them develop skills and have tools to fix the world or in this case to fix their world when they make mistakes because given that they're likely human beings they're pretty much likely to make mistakes and so the idea that um i don't have to run around being 
so afraid of taking risks, so afraid of, you know, so perfectionistic as though I, the world will be safe if I never make a mistake, which is a terrible way to live life as opposed to, I know that if I make a mistake, I have tools that I can, I can make things better. I can make things right with my friend when I upset him and I, and I said something that, that, that hurt his feelings. Um, you, you know, sort of the, that was not my intent, but that certainly was the effect. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to make it better if I can. Yeah. I heard something recently, um, that I'm going to try in the future. I haven't, I've yet to have a couple of middle school guinea pigs to test this out on. So I'll have to report back. And You're like your own lab. It's so great. And, but, but, <laughs> but, you, you, but, but the, 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 they're not rats. They're, they're human beings who actually give you immediate feedback. It must be. Yes. So- and, and they really are a metaphor for society in a lot of ways. You know, middle school, really, there's so much in middle school that's just the world. But the, what I had heard that I would like to try is this idea that when you have two kids who have, let's say, an argument or a disagreement, you can ask them to vote on what they would like to happen. You each get a vote. Uh, how would you like this to resolve? And then to the other person, how would you like this to resolve? And then there's a third entity that gets a vote. And the third entity is a relationship itself, the friendship itself. And wow. after, how would, what if the friendship were going to get a vote, what would they say should happen? Oh, I love that. Because I know in the, in the chapter about books and about boys, excuse me, you, you shared that a lot of times, you know, if, if I get in, in, in a fight with Ben and because I don't know how to fix it, I oftentimes will just walk away from the friendship and and the grave concern is that I then carry that forward with with kind of all relationships going forward whether it's with my boss in this employment or you know or, or a romantic partner going forward um, but I love that you know the tiebreaker is what is the relationship one yeah what's, what's that the tiebreaker is that the relationship or the friendship gets a vote I think yeah. that's very helpful for couples too to uh, just a different framework a different way of looking at decisions oh I love that I love that. I get two more, two more questions for you. Um, one of the things, you know, you, you of course lean in a lot on autonomy and, and helping kids go, you know, parents changing from being consultants to managers, or excuse me, from managers to consultants, right? You know, kids taking on, to your point, they, mom helps them write a good email, but then they write that email themselves and we don't turn back and we, we have kids develop these skills going forward more and more and more. Um, this COVID thing, it's made everything harder, right? And it also occurs to me that a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of things that kids might be working with or struggling on their own, um, they don't have that kind of cover anonymity because we're all to, we're all in this together, <laughs> right? And 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 you know, there's um. You have a great line in the, and we actually was talking about sex, which we're not going to spend time talking about, but, um, um, you know, that we're going to, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about this privately, not because it's bad, but because it's private. Right. And how do we, as, do you have advice for us as parents when we're, we, we have, we're seeing more of what our kids are doing. How do we give them enough space, even though they don't get to disappear and go off in school, you know, for six or seven or eight hours a day? What's your advice during this COVID time? So one byproduct of COVID that I'm seeing not only in my own house, but in many houses is what I'm calling the vampire phenomenon where kids are up all night and sleeping all day. And my theory is that it is the only time they can get the house to themselves 
and have some freedom. Oh, interesting. And so this is their solution. We're just going to, if we're going to have to share the space 24 seven like this, I'm going to just alter my hours so I can have a little bit more independence. And for kids who aren't doing that, they might be behind closed doors for hours at a time. And I've had a lot of parents ask me questions. Should I worry about my kid who's disappearing behind a closed door? With middle school, their prerogative, their developmental imperative is to pull away from their parents and identify with their peers. It's why I think that the pandemic is hardest on this age group. Mm-hmm any age group, uh, although I would extend it a little bit beyond into high school, you know, prior to having driver's license and being able to leave on their own, the, the desire for independence is so strong that the world is suddenly dangerous and everybody is home quarantining together. And that just flies in the face of their wiring. And I think we, as parents need to start from a place of empathy and recognize that we we should do what we can to give them that privacy that they need um, to provide openings to have conversations. Obviously, if we have concerns, if we think our kid has been, you know, perusing porn or whatever, and mm-hmm. we want to talk to them about it, you know, they, they're under our roof and this is an opportunity to have those kinds of conversations. But if they want to have a couple of hours in their room alone, doing whatever, reading a book, we don't need to be, you know, knocking down their door and saying, you know, what's going on? What are you doing? Come talk to me. Just understanding it's not personal. It's developmental. It's where they are and what they need to be doing. And, and, the, and, the, and the right to have that privacy. Boy, that's yeah. really good. Um, I love the quote that you have in here from Ken Ginsberg, who's, of course, just a, such a great thinker. Uh, and you write, um, or you share that he writes, the themes of adolescence include are my parents proud of me? Do I fit in with my peers? Am I capable at school? Do I have any idea what I can do with my life? Am I comfortable with my developing sexuality? And most basically, am I good enough? If you put all those questions together, you can begin to see why it matters so much that a parent loves a child for who they are. It's a beautiful line. It's a beautiful line. What do you think, why do you think that's so hard for parents? And, and, you know, if you had, let's say, you know, one or two things of, of how we as parents can do that better, because kids, as you said before, they want to be successful. They want their lives to work out. It's just, you know, they're building a life and that takes a lot of construction. We have to be honest with ourselves about when we are projecting our own anxiety onto our kids. And I think that particularly, you know, our our culture is fairly individualistic and competitive and whether or not that is adaptive these days is a good question. (laughs) But we, it comes from this well-meaning place of wanting to protect your children and set them up for success. But one of Ken Ginsburg's other quotes that really resonates with me is, the wider the gap between who between who your child is and who they think you need them to be, the more they'll struggle. Oh, yes, I do. Yep, that is a really good point to emphasize. So really trying to appreciate your child's gifts, to recognize that they're still developing those gifts. They're still trying to figure out where their interests and their strengths align and where they intersect. No one is good at everything. They're not just an extension of us. And really pausing to consider whether what we are messaging to them has more to do with our own feelings of insecurity or those, tra- that, those feelings of transference onto them, or whether this is something that we really need to be, quote unquote, fixing as opposed hmm. to 
allowing allowing it to unfold, allowing their interest to unfold. And if that gap between where they are and where we think they should be, that's in some ways more incumbent on us to close that gap than for them to, right? You know, not I'll love my kid more when he meets my expectations. But when I, if I love him for more reason and, and, and get my expectations more aligned with where he is. I share a story in the book about a boy, 14 or 15 year old boy who was having a lot of tension with his father. His father had been a division mm-hmm. one uh, lacrosse player, really wanted his child who was actually not that athletic to follow in his footsteps and play lacrosse. And he wanted to coach his youth teams. And by age 14 or so, this child was done. And the parent was creating so much friction and tension by emphasizing how important this was to him. Come on, come on, you got to play, you got to do this. That he not only was making this child feel bad about himself or that he was letting his father down. He also was failing to see the gifts that his child did possess. He was a really mm. artist. He could make things out of clay that were really intricate. And he just had this eye for art. And the father was completely missing that in uh. his dogged devotion to this idea of the kid being a lacrosse player. So it's not just what you're not getting. It's also what you're losing. Well, let's wrap it up then with the point that you share from Sally, the educator Sally Selby, because I think that encapsulates in a really lovely way what you just shared of um, when we try to when we try to push in certain ways, it's likely to cause all kinds of problems both to our children and to our relationship with our kids, but that we also end up missing so much of, of those natural gifts that just need a little more sunshine to yeah. grow. Yeah, yeah, I think she says, "Grow the tree you've got," right? Yeah. Uh, I, I love, this is a middle school, former middle school principal, and I, I think she's really wise, and it's good advice. And really, it's, um, you know, I wrote at one point an article about how to, how to tamp down the pressure on kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I pointed out is that it's no longer enough to get straight A's or to do the right extracurriculars to get into college or to get the right job anyway, all of those rules are changing. And so you're not only not necessarily setting your child up for success, you're also stripping the opportunity to have a really rich and trusting relationship with your child. Hmm. And, you know, and, and I know the data all supports that not only, uh, how would I say this? Um, it isn't necessary to be top 10% in school, to be top 10% in life, right? And if if it feels like it's so hard to compete in grades or sports because that's what everyone else is doing, my hunch is this boy with his artistic ability is in a wide open playing field and running for the end zone because there's no one trying to tackle him on the, on that field. And actually, you're the one who made the quote in my book that I love, which is if you focus on creating a kid in the top 10%, you're terrorizing everybody because the kid in the top 10% is fighting to stay there and the other 90% are feeling like they've let their parents down and that they're doomed to fail life. And particularly, you know, when when we make this single criterion as though everyone needs to be a top student. I mean, I don't know, you know, I know you, you know, you flamed out as a waitress. Um, I'm, do- <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. But there are, I mean, we all know so many people who are wonderfully, 
wonderfully successful and talented in the jobs that we that they do. And we have no idea where most of them went to college. I have no idea. I assume you went to college. I have no idea where you <laughs> went to college. What I know is that you've written a wonderful book that's incredibly useful for so many people. And particularly in this time of coming to really value and appreciate diversity in ways that we're, we're slow to get to that. I think that ex, that's important, not just for our society, but for our kids. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's the equivalent of, of human, you know, of, of biodiversity, right? Forests are more stable and, and ecosystems when they're biodiverse. And it sure seems to me that school systems and societies are, are more stable and healthy and happier when we celebrate all of those kids and all of their various talents and, and giving them the space uh, in middle school to figure out which way they want to grow um, is just is such a blessing that I think all kids deserve. And, and I just have to say, Phyllis, this, this middle school matters. The 10 schools that kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond, right? That and how parents can help. Can't forget that part. <laughs> it's that's a long title. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. Uh, and I just, I love how much warmth and how much wisdom and, and, and really practical advice there is to help kids navigate this difficult time of middle school and just as, <laughs> just as big a challenge for parents to be along for the ride with them. So, so thank you for writing this book and thanks for spending time with me. It's always fun to chat with you. I love talking to you always. And thank you for contributing to this book and sharing your wisdom because I love everything that you write as well. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Oh,